Hello, my name is Hui Zemang. Welcome to my podcast, The Truth About Us, a channel where you will hear about the everyday things you know well, discussed in a way that helps you understand them even better. Today, I want to talk to you about climate unchallenged, basically climate change, but the different controversies around it. Ever since the ancient times, human life has always been punctuated by various disasters in the world, some natural, some man-made, some more isolated, while others threatened our entire civilization and the continued existence of our species. But even with that, after every disaster, the foresight that we gain with hindsight has always been the mainstay of our survival in the world, ever helping us to better understand ourselves and our earth as our living environment. We grow to becoming ever aware of the need to balance our reciprocal relationship with our world and to adjust ourselves to its ever-changing nature. Only that way can our continued existence be guaranteed. But before I delve into the subject of climate change, allow me to belabor, with hindsight, yet another epidemic that we have survived and from which we can continue to gain more confidence in our resilience as a species. It was only two years ago in 2020 that the people of the world faced the biggest epidemic of their lifetime, COVID-19. We all can recall the fear that gripped every part of society when we witnessed firsthand how our way of life changed from how we know and preferred to be to something so strange. Many wondered whether there was any more meaning left to life. The little things that we always take for granted, such as our social interactions, a simple handshake or a hug became a symbol of danger which needed to be avoided at all costs, all of them as a matter of precaution against the possibility of infection. For many people, the ever simple act of breathing became more difficult either because of the need to wear a mask or when the disease was already in the body. The reclusiveness of social distancing substituted the closeness of interacting freely with our loved ones. And in the middle of this turmoil, it became almost impossible to use the warmth of our physical presence to give assurance to each other. Even more painful was how families lost their loved ones under circumstances that did not even allow for a last word, a last hug, or a final goodbye. In fact, we suffered the discomfort of surrendering even the very things that give meaning to our existence, just to stay alive. Think about that for a moment. In this state of panic, the people we had entrusted with the responsibility of bringing solutions to our problems, i.e. our governments and the scientists who advised them, seemed to find it hard to decide what to say to us with government officials contradicting each other while scientists questioned the credentials of their peers, making it ever clear that science, just like the law, is subject to debate and interpretation and is by no means absolute. To date, there are more articles and videos online by various doctors, scientists, politicians and ordinary people regarding the various possible causes of COVID-19 its origins and the circumstances that result in spreading it worldwide. Various possible scenarios are put forward regarding how governments could have dealt with the epidemic compared to what became the generally accepted way. Some of these ideas are an understanding that comes with hindsight, while others are a wisdom that was already prevalent during the epidemic, but was not loud enough to be heard at the time when the authorized voices were the most audible. Of course, 
With the various possibilities that were there to deal with the epidemic, it remains possible that the most inefficient solutions may have been used. This is perfectly understandable in the world of over 8 billion people and the wisdom of just as many. But without a system to collect this knowledge and make it available to those who might benefit from it. It is for that inability to hear everyone that we rather give a few people, in the form of politicians and scientists, the responsibility to create the solutions that the rest of us would need. This is a serious flaw at the center of our social contract with each other. For only a few people to make decisions on behalf of the rest of humanity, those decision makers would have to care enough for everyone on whose behalf they would be taking those decisions. Care enough to want them to be safe from harm and to stay alive. Unfortunately, this is often not the case. The decisions of the world are often made by leaders who accede to special interests and have no regard for their own equality with the people who would be impacted by those decisions. The decisions they make are mostly selfish, lacking in wisdom and unable to consider the broader reality in which everybody lives. Some leaders consider geopolitics to be more important than human lives. Some are racist, xenophobes, homophobes, and cannot be trusted to represent the diversity of the people they lead. Even when the very constitutions under which they serve declare all people to be equal, political expediency drives them to seek power even when they are not going to wield it in the service of their people, but often against them. In fact, Many of these leaders are in power not because of the will of their people, but for having enough money thanks to the special interests, to distort social perceptions, and they continue to serve these special interests by using people's resources and power. However, among all the selfish decisions of many world leaders, in all the positions they occupy, there is none more lacking in love as those who seek to profit from the misery of others or to enrich themselves with the resources meant to help those who need them the most. For all our failures and successes regarding the COVID-19 epidemic, all our experiences, together with the lessons we have gained, are vital to our ability to survive the world's forthcoming and existential threat of climate change. Do you remember the time when governments and the scientific world declared that there was no cure for COVID-19? And yet, over 90% of the people who contracted the virus still recovered after quarantining themselves in their homes, and that this recovery happened long before the vaccine was even developed. Personally, I believe that the importance of the human immune system, the primary factor responsible for the recovery of over 90% of the people who contracted COVID-19, was never emphasized as much as it should have been as the most viable salvation that the people of the world had against the ravages of the disease. Instead, authorities appeared on television and spoke of how far in the future the vaccine would be developed, how high the number of those who were infected, and how many had died or would likely die, without saying much about those who had recovered, who were in the majority, and the fact that they would have done so without any medication. The fear that these decision-makers peddled on television and social media could therefore be regarded as a critical factor that has contributed so much to creating fear among the people of the world, serving to undermine their highly needed immunity and causing some to unfortunately succumb to the disease. Having said that, our heads of state, government officials and specialists, all under the collective name of scientists, 
will continue to be at the forefront of managing every disaster that will ever befall our planet. A government will create laws that are supposed to protect its citizens, while specialists assume the responsibility of devising the needed solutions and advising government on how best to implement them. However, to put responsibility on the government officials and scientists to be the sole providers of the solutions needed by the rest of the people of the world would in itself deny the world the depth of wisdom that could be found among its ordinary masses. It would create in society an expectation that may never be met, and to an individual, the pain of knowing that they could have done better for themselves and for the greater benefit of others. Whenever someone who is asked to resolve a problem begins to benefit from the problem they are supposed to resolve, the lesser they see it as a problem to be resolved, but a solution to be sustained, even if they may continue to pretend to want to resolve it. What would you do if you became aware of the fact that the very people who are supposed to safeguard your life derive some benefits from the danger they are supposed to protect you from? Would you still remain confident in their willingness to protect you? Is it not like creating a scarecrow and then becoming a hero when people ask you to protect them from it? The greatest test that any disaster, including climate change, would present to humanity will be in our ability to recognize our oneness and equality with each other as human beings and realize how our very survival depends on each and all of us. We would be tested in our ability to rise above all narrow interests and collaborate as equals in harnessing our collective efforts towards survival and as equals in sharing the benefits of our victory. Now, how do we begin to survive climate change? It is critical that we start by understanding the problem as well as we can, and to allow ourselves to be guided by that, towards finding a sustainable solution. It is therefore important that we have the courage to be sincere in our diagnosis and understanding of the problem. We can neither be sure whether the actions we engage in would resolve a problem if we do not know what the problem is, nor confidently declared to be resolved if it was not clearly defined and isolated from everything it is not. Having said that, please allow me to bring to your attention a few important facts about the problem of climate change, especially why it is urgent and requires our action and yet there are still arguments whether it is even true and how this skepticism creates challenges to our cooperation with each other on the subject. Let's ponder the following important climate questions together, shall we? The first question is, is the climate truly changing, and is that an existential threat to humanity? Yes, the climate is changing. However, even if we may not be aware of that, maybe for the lack of something to compare with, the fact that the adverse weather is becoming more destructive to our livelihoods makes it necessary that we do something to alleviate the impact. Considering that this destruction happens indiscriminately in every part of the world and often causing loss of life, it could then be said that the threat of climate change is indeed existential. Is the climate change a result of climate warming or climate cooling? We experience the weather at different times as being one of both. In some places, people experience heat waves and snowstorms in others, but even with that, the climate is generally considered to be warming for the fact that much of our storms have a high content of water in them, hence the heavy snowstorms and floods. 
This can only be a result of a high rate of evaporation, which could either be caused by increased heat or in the amount of water that is available for evaporation, even when the heat may remain the same. Therefore, climate change is an imbalance caused by either more heat or more water. What is causing the imbalance in heat or in the water which results in climate change? The imbalances are caused by both human activity, such as in mining, and by natural phenomena, such as the shallowing of the seas, due mostly to the natural activities at the bottom of our oceans. Are people the major cause of climate change? No, it has not yet been established. What we know for sure are how various human activities and our way of life impact climate change, but we have not meaningfully contrasted the impact of the human causes with that of the natural causes to decide which of them would qualify as the primary factor. For that reason, we cannot establish whether the effort of dealing with the human causes alone would be enough to mitigate the broader effects of climate change. In fact, the question of whether people are the primary cause of climate change is at the core of all the arguments on the subject, impacting cooperation among scientists and among governments towards the climate sustainability goals. Now, someone may ask why is it not yet established whether or not people are the major cause of climate change, when we all know that the causes of climate change are many. The answer to that is with the methods we use and whether the other people would find the conclusions we draw from using such methods convincing or not. Take for instance, the world body that is responsible for advising our governments on the matters of climate change and the related policy making, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC. Since its inception, it has been running on a mandate that limits it to investigate only the climate change that is caused by people and not by natural phenomena. That means the world is yet to establish the extent to which nature itself is responsible for the effects we see in our climate. If, after comparing human and natural causes, we find the major cause of climate change to be within our means to resolve, we should go on and do just that. However, if it happens to be beyond us, that is where we would need to honestly concede and then, instead of trying to prevent something we cannot control, move on to the next stage of managing it, which would be to embrace this change as our new way of life and devising ways of softening the transition to it. As it stands, without investigating all the possible factors and deciding what is the main contributor to the problems, we cannot know if the efforts we are making towards reducing the human carbon footprint would be enough to slow down or even reverse the effects of climate change. After all, none of the current sustainability goals pledges that humanity will ultimately stop or even reverse climate change, which means we may be dealing with something that is beyond our ability to control. It may ultimately prove unwise to marshal the scarce resources at our disposal in the attempt to resolve what may turn out to be a wrong problem. Maybe I should take this opportunity to briefly discuss the broader causes of climate change, the natural factors that contribute to it. Among the most obvious factors, first are the volcanoes of the world. Have you ever seen a volcano erupting and found yourself intimidated by the sheer enormity of its explosion? The dark rolling clouds of dust, smoke and gas, its crater and the resulting river of hot magma. Now, we know that magma is molten rocks. 
But why is it even flaming? It is not much of the rock that is burning, but the gas and the fossil fuels that this molten sludge carries along on its way towards the surface. Because of their depth, volcanoes are fueled by fossil fuels. The burning lava is created by rocks and sand and other materials. High pressure underground, friction among the rocks, sparks caused by this friction and the fueling of this spark by methane and oil underground. What if I tell you that until the 17th of August 2023, there were 50 volcanoes that were simultaneously active throughout the world, and that there may be an equal number, if not more, of such volcanoes happening under our oceans, that we are currently not aware of because of our oceans remain one of the least researched places on our planet? How the activities occurring deep on the ocean floor might actually be affecting climate change, such as through volcanic activity, the many vents spewing out methane gas, the accumulation of sand from many centuries of rainfall, and can I also include in that the possibility that some governments may be using the seafloor as a dumping place for things they cannot dump anywhere else? How else can we know if so far in the history of the world only three people have gone as deep as the Mariana Trench? Anyway, with the ocean floor bigger than the actual size of our continent, it could be expected that the number of vents in the sea may be as much or even many times more than those found on the Earth's surface. But as I've already mentioned, their total contribution to the prevalence of greenhouse gases in our atmosphere continues to be unknown. At the same time, plant and fish material continue to get deposited at the bottom of the sea every year. Added to that are all the volcanic lava, shipwrecks, rocks from collapsed cliffs, and everything that ever sank to the bottom of the sea. Billions of cubic meters of sand continue to get dropped into the ocean every year through the inflow of rivers, storms, landslides, and floods, among other things. This soil goes to the bottom of the sea to combine with all other things that are there to make the ocean floor shallower. In that way, water that used to be too deep for the sunlight to reach and warm up then becomes available for evaporation, adding more water to the atmosphere. Sea level rise is therefore accelerated by our perceived flattening of the previously high landscapes as they are ground down to the sea level by water activity over many years. The more the erosion of landscapes, the shallower our oceans become, and the more accelerated sea level rise becomes. However, without a means to quantify the ocean floor activities, we may never know the extent of their impact on what we see every day as the effects of climate change. The need to consider all the possible causes of climate change and present them to all the people of the world for their consideration and cooperation in devising a solution is important for creating consensus among the people of the world around the issues of climate change. One of the major challenges to the consensus comes in the form of institutions that are created to spearhead this collaboration. For instance, the IPCC. Here is their mandate as found on their website. I quote, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change IPCC, was established by World Meteorological Organization and United Nations Environmental Program UNEP, in 1988 to assess scientific, technical and socio-economic information that is relevant in understanding human-induced climate change, its potential impacts, and options for mitigation and adaptation. Close quote. 
May I also mention that this is also an advisory body to the world governments on matters of climate change and the related policy. However, its mandate seems to address just the human contributions, which is just one part of climate change, when in reality there are two. This appears like an attempt to address a problem by insisting on a preferred method even when that may not be the most efficient among all that are available. Incomplete information on climate change can only point to wanting to preoccupy ourselves with a problem rather than willing to confront its true cause and solve it. Lack of alternative sources of energy and the need to preserve sovereignty is another major challenge to creating the required consensus on addressing climate change. If an economy were to attempt to address climate change by cutting its use of the greenhouse-related energy, while not able to generate an equivalent amount of clean energy, this would impact its productivity as well as ability to meet the demand of goods and services in the economy. For that reason, it would be difficult for many countries to volunteer into clean energy until they could produce it more efficiently than the current fossil fuels. At the same time, the worsening climate conditions operate at a different time frame from the one used by governments of the world, such as the 30 or 50 year old plans and targets that various governments set for themselves. That means, regardless of what plan a government may be working on, each country would sooner or later have to develop plans to help its citizens to weather their climate storms. Leaders of the world need to start moving away from tailoring the climate change to their own needs as if it is within their control to shift the imminent challenges it poses to society. Climate change is already happening and we need to begin to prepare communities to survive the ensuing perils. Of high importance is the issue of refugees and the need for governments to build capacity to deal with internally displaced people. Further to that, there needs to be agreements regarding climate refugees and how countries that may be under pressure could be helped. Resources of various governments could become more pressurized by a higher influx of immigrants and refugees. The shortage may spark inclination for nationalism in many countries, with countries moving to safeguard their resources for their nationals. As a result, we might see more protectionist tendencies such as increases in xenophobia, racism, and crime in general. On the other hand, it may be necessary in other cases for people to remain where they are and live with the conditions of climate change as they unfold. In that case, there still needs to be agreements regarding how to help them. With more water and less land as a likely new reality to adjust to, it becomes necessary to develop infrastructure that would allow people to live in areas where there is more water than land, as well as develop technologies such as efficiencies in salt water electrolysis as a way of creating hydrogen and using it as fuel for mobility in a waterlogged world. Finally, we need to embrace the fact that our fate depends on our inclusivity sharing and helping each other, in state of exclusivity, competition, and conflict. Only in that way can we guarantee the survival of our species, unless if we could all call for a ceasefire with each other, just like with the Christmas truce of 1914 during the First World War, and for a moment forget our differences and focus on those things that make us all human. We may miss out on an opportunity to create a new order of better understanding and mutual care, where we define our world in more inclusive terms that create more harmony and less suspicion and conflict. In the end, 
Allow me to share with you the two lessons that I have learned with regard to the COVID-19 epidemic, which I believe would also help us deal with the impending realities of climate change and any other disaster. 1. Our minds, attitudes and decisions regarding our circumstances could help to save us from any harm and they are our primary defense against any disaster. Therefore, we need to develop confidence in our natural mental abilities to ever learn and to find ever new ways of living in harmony with each other in an ever-changing world. 2. When we live with other people in the same environment, we continue to deal with the effects of the things we do to them. In other words, whenever we solve a problem while denying others the solution, we continue to experience that problem as if we did not resolve it for ourselves whenever we encounter people who have not yet resolved it and the effects of that. Our destiny as a species is intertwined by the fact that we all live in the same world and to save ourselves, we might have to save another. I will end here for today. Thank you for staying tuned. I hope you found this episode informative and until next week, have yourself a great week. Goodbye for now.